This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, 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 and welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I am Lindsay Gibbs, a sports reporter at Think Progress, and for today, the captain of the Burn It All Down ship. I'm so excited to be here with three of my four fantastic co-hosts. We have Shereen Ahmed, who is in Edmonton, Canada, she tells me today, and I know it is very early there. So thank you, Shireen, for getting up with us. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you. And it is not 100 (laughs) degrees in Edmonton. It's like a very beautiful 16 Celsius. So I'm very happy. I have no idea what 16 Celsius means. God, I'm such a lame American. Okay, (laughs) I don't know. Wow. All right. And we also have in Austin, Texas, Jessica Luther. Hey, Jess. Hey. (laughs) And also sweltering in this East Coast heat with me is Dr. Brenda Elsie, the Associate Professor of History at Hofstra. Hi, Bren. How are you in New York? Hey. Hey. Okay. Today's episode is jam-packed. We are going to do a little post-Women's World Cup women's soccer roundup, looking at a lot of the stories going on around not just the league, the National Women's Soccer League, but also globally in the wake of this fantastic tournament. Finally, fortunately, domestic violence has been in the news a lot this week. So we're going to talk a little bit about domestic violence policies, primarily in our sports leagues and, you know, ask the question, is there a right way to do this? What's the way forward? First, though, I know that we all really enjoyed this week, Dan Levitard's rant. He finally went political. Someone in ESPN that's not Jamel Hill finally decided to (laughs) address this stuff. It was very, to me, it was just very refreshing. And of course, it's been an awful week in American politics, even more awful than usual, because President Trump is the racist attacks that he is directing to the four Congresswomen, all women of color, are, I'm just terrified that they're going to result in violence. And the racism that It's just, there's no way to separate them from the racism. The racism is the point. So look, it's been very hard and it's very good to hear uh, Dan Levitard speak out against this. Jess, I know you, this meant a lot to you. What did you think about Dan's rant? Yeah, I thought it was great. Like one of the things he did, like one of the things he said that I appreciated was he directly called out the ESPN policy that says that they're not allowed to talk about politics. He called it cowardly. And he referred to the way that the policy is set up that the only time they're allowed to talk about politics is when they use something a player has done or a coach. And he called them 
meat shields that like that's what had the, what ends up happening is these players function as meat shields for the ESPN talking heads and i just found on some level it's like annoying that this is a big deal that he's done this but it is a big deal because ESPN has this really terrible policy that they put in place because of Jamel Hill and we covered that extensively on this show and it was just really nice to see someone as powerful and a white dude at that at ESPN be the one to call this out absolutely Shireen did you listen to this I did and I think that in addition to that what was more interesting for me, was the discussions that emerged afterwards. The fact that he did talk. I wasn't expecting it from the Batard at all, to be honest, because I, I just, I know that it seems like it's a week of terrible politics in the United States, but for a lot of people of color, it's a normal week in the United States. So it's really particularly like attacks towards Ilhan Omar have not been new. She has been threatened with death before. She has been threatened with lots of things before. So I get that it's a big deal in the sports realm. One of the things that was really, for me, just irritating beyond belief was the memo that Jimmy Pitaro, who Pitaro is the, uh, for those that don't know, he's a president of ESPN. He also had a memo sent out from the vice president that said, quote, it's not about the message. It's about the use of the ESPN platform. Well, to quote Canadian thinker and communications philosopher Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. And you are actually contributing and you're complicit in violence when you don't you know, do anything about it. So this whole idea that you can't talk about it, I we shared our piece on burning it all down when everything what happened with Jamel Hill. But it's just this is not new for people of color. It's a completely it's a cyclical and continuous thing. So but again, it's really nice to see those those people speaking out who do have privilege. Like this is a crooks, we're at a crossroads. People with that privilege need to speak out. I also just really quickly want to add, this is why why I'm so incredibly grateful, again, for burning it all down. Because we don't have this bullshit policy. And we understand that sports are inherently political. So fuck that policy and that memo. I'm grateful for my crew. <laughs> Bren? I guess that, yeah, I agree with what everyone said already, and it's important what Shereen said about keeping in mind the constant nature of racist attacks against people of color, and that it it is kind of a typical week in some ways. The only other thing is that the fact that the president of the United States is targeting congresswomen like this on the basis of you know, race, it's just racism. So I have to say, I, I guess the only thing, okay, it's taking me a while to say this, but I hate that it's called politics at all. Like it's like human rights. Like it's not, even, it, of course it's political. Right. But it's like beyond that, like nobody like should be like, well, I belong to a political party that hates people of color. Like that's, those are fucking Nazis. Like, I don't even think we're at a point I just it just blows my mind that there's a legitimate political position to take that is not against this, that isn't appalled by this. So I, I guess I just get I was happy to hear him. Um, I love that he says if you if you don't say anything, you're complicit. You know, he's not the first person to say it. I like that he acknowledged Jamel Hill at the very beginning of the of the speech. You know, because it is always women of color on the forefront. 
um, doing this, although he's going to get all the cookies and that's okay, fine. You know, but I just want to say one more time, like, I think we just need to always remember too, like, how is this political? Like this should be something that unites everyone against it. I don't know. So that's, that's my only sort of sad face about it. Yeah. I mean, in Jamel Hill and her, on her Twitter, she, she acknowledged that she said, you know, Dan and I agree on this, like racism is not politics, right? Like this is human rights and it, but it's the line that ESPN has drawn to be political. And it reminds me, I remember when, back when Jamel Hill and Michael Smith were doing the press rounds for their uh, 6 p.m. Sports Center. So this is a few years ago before that launched. So this was, and I remember Michael Smith saying on a, um, a podcast, he said, don't hit women isn't politics, you know? And he was talking about how they're talking about their domestic violence policies and how, you know, the pressure that they felt not to address that. And I I, I think about that a lot. Like, don't hit women isn't politics. And that's the same for me. Like, race, you know, don't incite racist violence against women of color who are representing our country. That's not politics. That's just common sense. All right. Let's dive in. Let's start on the lighter end of what is a intense episode today and talk about women's soccer. So Shireen, do you want to get us started here? Thanks, Lynn. You know, I've, I'm so excited to see that this momentum after the Women's World Cup is just going continuously. We have dived into NWSL, been some incredible matches. Christine Sinclair has yes scored to bring us to normalcy. I just wanted to mention a couple of really cool things. We also saw this past week something that I hope I'm not skipping and going to someone's what what's good, but we also saw the return of a lot of players to the NWSL, which I think they were greeted with a lot of excitement. And when I say that, I mean the U.S., the world champions. You know, we saw Orlando Pride receive their players, including Ashlyn Harris. We saw, you know, um, Utah receive Kristen Press. We saw Portland receive back Tobin Heath, Adriana French, Lindsay Horan. Like, I just, it was really, it was lovely. It was lovely to see the continued excitement. So speaking about NWSL, very specifically, there was a little thing that came up. I don't know if anyone caught it, but there was actually... During the ticker tape parade, Kristen Press had taken over uh, this, you know, outlet that we've heard of um, called Barstool, and she took it over. They're really trashy. If you've never heard of them, I appreciate you in your life. She <laughs> took over their their Insta story, so just to sort of show. Now, that struck me as really, really bizarre, particularly because Kristen Press is a phenomenal human and a really great person and has been very public about, you know, her beliefs in intersectionality. Anyway, but Barstool is this place that festers in and grows misogyny, homophobia, racism. Like they're just, they're gross and they're super toxic and they actually troll people to no end. So I was very confused at that, what I deemed an undesirable collaboration. I ended up writing about it for The Guardian. I ended up getting a lot of Kristen Press stands coming at me, really angry that clearly I was a white feminist because I had spoken out about this and why didn't I mention, you know, someone else? So long story short, before a presser in Utah, Kristen Press pulled out. 
like 10 minutes before the presser. So I'm just sort of like, whoa, eyes wide open. What's going on over here? What was going on was they said that she was ill, but what ended up happening is what I had suspected, what it was truly. And finally, she spoke out at a presser yesterday after she scored this incredible goal and nutmegged the fuck out of somebody. Like, yeah, it was she just, really did. <laughs> it was like the GIF will live on for it was it so was, good. It was I watched just, it over and over again. Oh my and it was, god! It was, it was it was literally one of those moves where you want to tweet out, "I want an officer, I want to report a murder," because like it was that. Oh, was, I don't even know who the player was, but it was just, anyways, beautiful, beautiful. That's cool. that player does not want you to know. Who they are yeah, right now. it was it was the most it was one of the most glorious things, and I was so happy to see it everywhere. But and and anyway, so Chris impressed did acknowledge the thing. She said that it was her team, and when she says team, she doesn't mean her 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 teammates in in Utah. She means her PR team, who are EAG Sports Management. They advised her. It was a terrible, terrible idea. And she had, you know, addressed it, which I think is really important because this is not something that is going to go under the rug. So that's just one thing. It was a small little thing that happened. So I'm really glad that, you know, hopefully we can we can move on. She can unlearn and maybe she can fire those people because that was just ridiculous. We can. There's also been comments coming from within the NWSL about, you know, Laura Harvey. And I think it's it's really, really, really it's key. So the, what I'm saying is key is that. Yeah, Shereen, first of all, thank you for writing that article and drawing more attention to this. This is something I always struggle with personally when female athletes do, you know, I mean, we know Rose LaBelle has been on the Barstool podcast, Elena Deladon a few years ago. I mean, I always struggle for on how much to call them out. And you challenged me that I need to be a little bit more it's okay to demand a response from them. It doesn't mean you have to condemn them forever. It doesn't mean you have to not appreciate uh, Christine Press's goal, you know, as long, but, uh, it, you know, it's okay to ask for a response. And I think, so thank you for that. For me, I always like being being pushed on subjects like this. I think what was the, what was the most frustrating to me was both U.S. soccer and Christine and um, Kristen Press's PR team's silence. And friend of the show Kim McCauley made a great point where she said that she thinks that the reason that Press's PR team didn't come out and condemn is because they want their male clients to still be able to work with Barstool. And that to me was totally right. Like she's exactly right. And U.S. soccer probably doesn't want to burn that bridge either, right? So that means it all was put on Press's shoulders, which is just really frustrating because I don't doubt that she wasn't completely aware of, <laughs> you know, their ridiculousness. She's not as incredibly online as the rest of us are. And, um, you know, I'm glad that's great for her. But I think that was really tough. And then, you know, as you addressed in your piece, Shireen, so well, what Barstool was doing was they were trying to promote the idea that that um, Kristen Press's team came to them and that this was an example of why they weren't misogynistic was because Kristen Press did that. And that was why this really needed to be called out. Jess? Yeah, I just want to say very quickly, like, and piggybacking right off of that, this is the problem with the continued legitimacy of the site. Like, for someone like Press who maybe and bless her heart didn't have any idea about all the issues around what is a major sports media company the fact that like so much of sports media and 
like and like Kim pointed out in her in her tweet that sports organizations continue to say that this is a legitimate organization. Of course, is that makes it difficult for people who aren't extremely online to understand what it is that they're getting involved in. And that's part of what bothers me so much about all this. Absolutely. Shereen, can you, you're about, I think, to talk about Laura Harvey's comments now, because I thought this was another important thing that came out this week. Another friend of the show, anyone who's anyone really, uh, is a friend of the show, Meg Linehan, um, did a phenomenal interview with Utah Royals uh, head coach Laura Harvey, who was so outspoken about the lack of advertising and capitalization from the Women's World Cup. Shereen, what were, do you have those comments in front of you? Yeah, I think that what Laura Harvey did, which is really important for those that don't know, she's the uh, head of Utah Royals. And I think that it's really important to understand that her job is also to advocate and to promote what happens in the NWSL. And although there's connections to national teams and stuff, I think this is really important. And her comment was just that the league, basically the crooks was the league didn't have a plan for the NWSL didn't have a plan for like capitalizing off of the popularity and they could have like domestic leagues could have shone. And, and gotten more spotlight considering the world champions actually all play in the NWSL. So I think it's just, it's really key to do that. And what she did say, um, and I'll quote her here, is the responsibility falls on both. As players, we have platforms. And this is um, Becky Sauerbrunn speaking now. I think the responsibility falls on both. As players, we have platforms that the league doesn't quite have yet. And it's a responsibility for us to promote the league in the best way possible. And that's really, really key here because this gets back to the fact that the players actually have to do a lot of the heavy lifting also. And I just, I think a lot of, in, in, in this, it was really happy to see um, Laura Harvey speaking up about it. So... I think this is a thing, and I do think that the Women's World Cup became a different type of catalyst because we've got players speaking in realms that they didn't always traditionally, um, and I, I just love the amplification of that. I completely agree, and it's worth noting, I believe that Laura Harvey is the only female coach in the NWSL right now, so of course she's the one out in front advocating for this. I think I read that in Meg's piece, but... Obviously, there's a lot more going on outside the NWSL, and our very own has been on the forefront of what's been happening in Argentina. Brenda, uh, yeah. can you catch us up there? Yeah, it's it's horrible. It's like the worst case scenario that someone could have thought would happen. So basically, when you go from a World Cup where you can bring a delegation of 23 and then you go to the Pan American games, which are just a month later right now, they're going to happen this week in Lima, you go down to 18. And so it it was obvious that coach Carlos Borrello would have to cut people, but the decisions he made are like nothing less of just shocking, including leaving off the captain, Estefania Benini, implying that she at 29 is too old He's also, well, he replaced her with someone who's 31. So it's no, it's, it's fucking oh nonsense. There's not even, I can't even, I wrote about it in the equalizer. I couldn't even type hard enough. I was so angry. Like I was like killing my computer. So he left off Belen Potassa, Ruth Bravo, Gabby Garden, Sole Jaime's and Florencia Bonsegundo. The last two of which are questionable because Sole, it seems 
maybe wanted to stay with her club at that time. And Bon Segundo seems like he may have made an overture to her, but in solidarity, she wouldn't play. So truly Bravo, Ruth Bravo, uh, and Estefania are the two most like glaring, like that's insane. Like that's just in, like you just wouldn't do that in any universe. And it's just really clear that it's because of a fight that happened at the end of the World Cup where Benini, as captain, tried to present a series of complaints about the coaching staff, which had done things like come up with an itinerary the night before game day and handed it out on scraps of paper. And so I've put it on Twitter. I put the scraps of paper. You can see them. They're given to me by the players. Obviously, I talked to four players, none of whom want to be identified the scraps of paper have, uh, let's say, the day before the Scotland game, have eight activities, five of which are food-related. So it tells them that they can have breakfast, they can have lunch, they can have a snack, they can have dinner, and their bedtime. Nothing on like individual training programs, nothing on GPS technology, nothing on like strategy. It's in it's, it's so, it, you know, they were demanding more professionalism from the coaching staff. You know, I, I don't know what to say, except it's just so obvious that this is retribution and revenge on the part of Carlos Borello. And as soon as eyes weren't on him during the Women's World Cup, less than a month after has has cut the player, particularly the captain. And it's infuriating and sad. And I'm so sorry because these women have subsidized that team. They've never been paid enough. So it's their resources, their family's resources that have subsidized those teams that bought them cleats, that that kept them in shape with gym memberships, that keep them eating. So they've subsidized the team and now they're cut without a phone call after years. And it's that's the type of stuff that will happen when attention turns elsewhere sometimes. God, that's just awful. Jess? Yeah, I just was going to quickly add one last thing, which is that the AFCON, the men's tournament in Africa. Shireen, I feel like you were excited about the outcome. Oh my God, <laughs> vive Algérie! I love you. It is no surprise that I love Riyad Mahrez. Like everybody knows us. Vive Algérie, allez les Fenech. Like I love it. And it was just, it was so exciting because it's a part of the world that gets so beautifully wrapped up. I didn't like that AFCON started during the Women's World Cup. So I didn't give it all my attention in the group stages because obviously Women's World Cup is more important. But but this was, it was so fun. For those that don't know, Senegal and Algeria went to the final and Algeria won one nothing. So it was, oh, sorry, go ahead. Jess. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned in your hot take, who was the hot take with? Janine Anthony. The African. Oh, Janine, Janine Anthony. Yeah, you mentioned in your hot take with Janine Anthony, or she did actually to you, that AFCON had moved, that it used to be a lot earlier in the year. And this year just happened to start during the Women's World Cup. Um, (laughs) And I just wanted to mention, like, all I mean, there was a lot of attention I saw. Maybe it's just who I follow on Twitter, but I just saw a lot of people talking about AFCON this year, the men's AFCON. And Egypt doesn't even have a women's team. And it's just such a perfect example of like the micro like just it's such a good example of like women's sports women's soccer in general right that there's so much celebration around what's happening on the men's side and then as soon as you look over to see what's happening on the women's side you are instantly disappointed yeah like I have friend who plays on the Egyptian national team she's Canadian and has dual citizenship and she has been to a continental cup before and stuff like this and the amount of resources 
that it's to a point where even for meals post training, they're like dishes sent like potluck from the families of the players. Like it's, it's just, there's a, a willingness to support, but it's at such a base level. It's not that Egypt doesn't have the money for this. Um, Al-Ahli is one of like the oldest clubs in Africa. They don't have a woman's side. They can't have a woman's side. They'll argue this is, you know, we don't want to get into, um, they don't want to get into issues of religiosity. But Egypt is actually quite pro- progressive in that guard and even on the women's team that they have that's not always functional. They Some of the women cover, some don't, and it's not a big deal. So men will use the fact that other men will get angry about religion as a shield and to not do anything. So it's like, it's, this is why I think men should just exit the football scene and just let women do their thing. Just give us the money and move out of the way. Egypt is no exception. Yeah. And once again, to me, this is another example of the people in charge of sport, not really meaning their support of women's football, because you could easily have it as a requirement to be able to host something like this, that you have to have be investing resources properly into your women's team. But nobody does that. Okay, so unfortunately, we need to talk about some more depressing stuff this week, as there have been multiple uh, domestic violence cases and sports that have been in the news. Um, Jess, can you get us get us started with this uh, this conversation? Yeah. So quick note that this segment might be triggering or activating for some listeners. We provide timestamps in our show notes. So if you need or want to skip this segment, please do. Like Lynn said, we're having one of those sports moments again where it feels like domestic violence is everywhere. It's a really sad feeling, I got to say. I'm going to give a rundown on the latest stories, which isn't short, I'm sorry to say, and we can go from there. I, I woke up this morning to prep for this episode and immediately saw the name Greg Hardy. And that so on Saturday night, former NFLer Greg Hardy, known widely for his conviction for domestic violence that was dropped on appeal, won a UFC fight in San Antonio. So he's still around and is getting paid to beat people up. So that's oh cool. God, cool. I'd miss that. Uh, <laughs> two weeks ago, Major League Baseball punished Philadelphia Phillies outfielder Adubel Herrera for domestic violence. Herrera will not play in the last 85 games of the season, nor any in the postseason should the Phillies get there. He will not appeal the suspension, saying, quote, I acted in an unacceptable manner and I'm terribly disappointed in myself. I am I alone am to blame for my actions. This is the second longest MLB suspension for domestic violence. Jose Torres's 100-game suspension being the longest. In the world of baseball media, Jonah Carey, currently a writer at The Athletic and the former lead baseball writer at Grantland for four years, was arrested and charged with three counts of assault causing bodily harm and one count of uttering death threats. According to court documents, he attacked his wife, in July 2019, the Athletic has suspended him for now. Kerry was outspoken against domestic violence committed by MLB players Arnaldus Chapman and Jose Reyes. In the NFL, Kansas City wide receiver Tyreek Hill, who we've talked about repeatedly on the show, will not face any punishment from the league under their prefer- personal conduct policy. You might remember he was under investigation for possibly abusing his young son, Hill's girlfriend, whom he beat up in college while she was pregnant with their son and for which he pleaded guilty. Uh, She made a recording in which she says to Hill that their son is terrified of him. He responded to her, quote, you need to be terrified of me too, dumb bitch. Uh, We'll talk more about Hill in a minute. And last but not least, there's the WNBA. Let's start with Raquana Williams of the LA Sparks. 
Last December in Florida, Williams reportedly beat and pulled the hair out of her ex-girlfriend's head and threatened to shoot a man who was there trying to stop her. She pleaded not guilty to two felony charges related to the case. The Sparks signed her despite the pending charges, and she's played this entire season up until now. This week, the league suspended her for 10 games, the longest suspension in its history. 10 games is roughly a third of the regular season of the WNBA. The WNBA Players Association came to Williams' defense, which is not uncommon. This happens all the time in the NFL, too, uh, saying in a statement, quote, We are disappointed with the league's actions. There is an ongoing criminal proceeding, and in fairness to the player, the league could have and should have awaited its completion before taking any action. Raquana has not had a fair opportunity to fully defend herself for immediately filing a grievance and will seek the arbiter's review. This all comes at the moment when Kathy Engelbert, the new commissioner, is starting her job. And also another WNBA player, the Storm's Natasha Howard, uh, was accused of domestic violence by her wife, I believe, last weekend. Howard has denied this and filed for divorce. The WNBA and the Storm are investigating. Howard was recently named a starter in the upcoming WNBA All-Star Game in Las Vegas. And one thing I want to note, the WNBA does not have a domestic violence policy in its collective bargaining agreement with the players. As we've mentioned a lot, they're about to go into negotiations for a new CBA. So certainly this will be part of it. Okay. That's a lot. Domestic violence is so difficult because it's so personal and it can be so dangerous. I, I feel like everyone will know this, but I do think that teams and leagues have a responsibility to deal with these allegations. I think any employer should have to deal with a potentially violent employee in some way. Um, But as Lynn said at the top of the show, The question right now is like, is there a right way to do this in professional sports? And Lindsay, I actually want to throw it to you because you wrote about Tariq Hill this week for Think Progress and you called the NFL policy, which is probably the most famous one out there. You called it, quote, broken. So what do you think? Like, what is the way forward? Can we do this in pro sports? I regularly change my opinion on this. me too. And (laughs) it's something that, you know, I I will admit, like, I did believe that there was a way forward here, you know, five years ago. But I know that the NFL's every single move that they've made on this front has pretty much been the wrong one. What really stuck out to me in the Tyreek Hill decision was that first of all, it seems that under the NFL's policy, he's not really considered a repeat offender because his first domestic violence wasn't when he was in the NFL. So it seems like the fact that he was on tape, even if they couldn't figure out what happened to his child, right? The fact that he was on tape threatening a woman that he had previously pled guilty to assaulting should have been enough for another, you know, for a suspension of some kind under this policy. But it seems like it was not. Another thing that really stuck out to me, though, was that she, um, you know, his fiance, Crystal Espinosa, didn't cooperate with the NFL. And of course, there's so many reasons why women or, you know, survivors of any kind would not want to participate in this process. But to me, I just kept thinking they've had five years now to try and build up this trust and have failed. And that to me is the biggest problem that we're dealing with right now. Like nobody trusts the NFL to protect them, not the players and not the not the survivors. And so we're left with you know, this mess of a situation that, that that leaves Tyreek Hill, you know, completely on the field, no questions asked. 
and that's what's really troublesome to me. And I just keep thinking, look, I know that it's widely considered, uh, it's popular opinion that the Ezekiel Elliott uh, case when he got six game suspension was an overreach by the NFL and kind of a, a cover up type situation to try and pretend like they were being strict. But the truth is, there was a lot of really disturbing stuff in the Ezekiel Elliott case. We covered it back here on this podcast a long time ago. There were a lot of reasons to believe that Ezekiel Elliott was uh, abusive towards his girlfriend, and his girlfriend did cooperate with investigators with the NFL. But the NFL botched its punishment of her, of, of Elliot so much that the case ended up being appealed time and time again and in court. So all of a sudden you had the court transcripts of the NFL PA's lawyers going after this survivor's credibility in public. So this is all of a sudden public information. And I remember after that thinking, there's no way any survivor is going to work with the NFL again. There's just no way. And that's ultimately, you know, what we saw in the Tyreek Hill case. So it's tough. I, I think that there should be a way to do this, but it's not a straight way forward. Shereen? Yeah, just listening to that, it's really hard because it's coming up everywhere. And thank you, Jess, for doing this. What I just wanted to say was just about Jonah Carey. I'm in Toronto. Well, right now I'm not, but I'm based in Toronto. And Jonah Carey is a Canadian voice and this very respected voice in sports media. And he's also a huge ally of writers, like sports writers of color and people in that community. And was someone who whose, you know, sort of take on race and gender was fairly, like, it was nuanced, it was smart, it was, he said the appropriate things where they need to be said. And and for that, you know, this is something that's desperately lacking in Canadian sports media, particularly. So I was literally shocked when I saw the news, because, and, and this is a lesson for us within sports media, and as women or non-binary folk, not to be surprised, um, because this is a systemic problem. The normalization of this type of violence is a systemic problem, and not just in the industry, in sports, in society. And the fact that someone so outspoken or previously outspoken um, about Chapman, wasn't it? Wasn't Jonah Carey really his, like he tweeted about hating the Cubs or liking the Cubs but hating him? And but can do this and just sort of be like, okay. And the fact that it happened before, I didn't know it happened in 2018. It wasn't because I would have heard about it, but that it was. Nobody knew. Yeah, like it was just, it's something that is normalized or considered acceptable. And this is not someone that can feign ignorance about that type of toxicity when they've spoken about it. So it's just, what I'm trying to say is, and it's, I don't want to simplify it by saying, let's just not be surprised at the violence that men are capable of, but just look a little broader and say, look at the systems that they exist in. And it is very disappointing because like, Again, I'll say this. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a friend of the show uh, just about it. And specifically on race, there's very few people in sports media that are as on point, particularly in Canada, like Jonah Carey was. And that's not going to absolve him of anything. But I'm saying there's a loss here on different levels is what I'm saying. Absolutely. Brenda? I guess when these things come up and when you start to get into these discussions, which are really interesting for me, I'm always struck by the tension between kind of punishment and culture change, or I don't even know how to say it, but I get a little bit frustrated, I guess, with all of these leagues for, even if they have a policy that's clear, 
and good or whatever I think that is. And I'm, I'm not really great at that stuff at thinking like, what's a punishment, you know, some of it feels like arbitrary, like, what should you get for terrifying your wife and son? Everything, everything bad. <laughs> what, what can I say? I mean, 14 games, 18 games at a certain point, it's like, it sort of like removes the gravitas of it. For me, when it's like counting games, so it's like, I don't know, six, 12, 400, you know, fuck it all. So that's kind of, you know, I'm a burn it all down person in terms of that, I guess. But, okay, but on the flip side, I guess what it makes me feel like is there needs to be more proactive, like counseling, help, not after the fact, but like a whole recognition of culture change that just feels like it's not happening. And yes, that deals with the fact that women can be violent with one another too in intimate partner relationships as the rundown just included. It doesn't deny the fact that the majority of perpetrators are men and there's a reason for that. But there needs to be some kind of, I feel like, a discussion about kind of what is punishment and what is you know, what would change look like and how do you get there? Because punishment just hasn't really, not only because it's not enough punishment maybe or whatever, but also it just feels kind of hollow sometimes given the gravity of this, these situations. Well, and it feels to me, it just feels so often like PR, like going through the motions, like people don't actually understand or appreciate the severity of, you know, what domestic abuse is and the nuances there. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are in the, you know, cut them loose completely camp when something like this happens. But I don't really agree with that way forward either, because we know that survivors are more in jeopardy when, um, jobs are lost and when they're in rapid transition and in high stress situations. And if you know that any allegation is going to automatically lead to a job loss, you would be much more hesitant to come forward. So it is complicated in that way. I do want to talk about the WNBA stuff because everyone knows I follow the league really closely and you know love the league. I want to say, first of all, this is the problem with lifting up female athletes only as role models and like inspirations is like, no, no, they're real people. They can be real shitty too, you know? But I think that my biggest problem with all this has been the Los Angeles Sparks have never seemed to grasp that they are not the victims in this and that what Raquana Williams did was really serious And just the tone of how they've been talking about this is just uh, down to like people I super admire, like Chinea Gumake, who I think is just phenomenal. Um, Just talking about this in a really lighthearted, really, you know, we're proud of our teammate for how she's handled this and we'll get through this type of way. And that's really bothersome. But I think it's also important to take a moment and to shine a light on the fact that So often we talk about domestic violence in a very gender binary manner. And I think the WNBA, what's happening in the WNBA is a good good time to take a moment and remind us that domestic violence does occur in same-sex couples. And often I've been talking with a lot of experts this week because I really wanted to understand kind of the dynamics that are typically at play. And what I've learned is that as hard as it is for, you know, a woman who has been abused by 
her male partner to get justice in this system, it's even much more difficult when it is a same-sex partnership or, you know, you're dealing with trans or non-binary individuals. Particularly when it's women woman on woman, what often happens is um, since the police and the legal teams, uh, so the, both the police and the courts have no idea what to make of women batterers and women abusers. So often, even more often than in, in cases of men and women, when the police come, they will, they will arrest both parties, right? The, the system will treat them both as the abusers. And there's really no path forward for support um, for either for the victims or the abusers. And I think it's, it's important that we kind of hold that as part of this conversation. And remember that with all the dynamics at play. Uh, Jess, do you think that what do you think the WNBA should do from here? Yeah, well, I definitely think I just, this is such a hard conversation and I, cause I'm with Brenda, right? Like what is punishment? And, but I mean, basically they do have to flush out a, flush out a DV policy in their CBA, right? Like at the basic, the most basic level, like that has to be worked out. I hope that Engelbert and one of the things that she'll do coming in new is push on this. Like there has to be something because like you said, the LA Sparks did not handle this well. It was really hard for me to follow the team at all because uh, Williams is really good <laughs> and they were really excited about her. And so if you were pre- like watching it all, they were so thrilled while they were being pretty silent about these really terrible charges. And, and it was just as a fan, I got to say, I found it really... It was the most distance I had felt from the league in, in a long time. And and so I, at minimum, they have to have some kind of policy. It'll be arbitrary and subjective once it comes to actually putting it into practice. But they've got to do something. And I'm with you. I was bummed by Gumake's statements about Williams and centering her and the team as if that's the only issue. I think one of the things that happens a lot in gendered violence, you know, interpersonal violence is like it becomes immediately like... There isn't space for nuance. It's like, did it happen or did it not happen? And we have to take a position on that. And from there, we then decide how we're going to manage it instead of like, how is everyone doing? Like, how how is this woman managing right now? Like, what has this been like for her? There's so much gray in there. And it's so easy to just make it about like, right, wrong, whose side am I on, good, bad, when it's so rarely like that. So I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you. But I would like to see, like, I would like the WNBA to be transparent about this. I feel like that's another thing that the Sparks got wrong and that lots of people get wrong. I just, I hope that they are really clear about how they make the decisions about this policy going forward. I agree. And look, let's just say that going away, Natasha Howard, speaking of players who are playing well, is phenomenal. She's an all-star. She's scheduled to be at WNBA All-Star next week amid all this. So, whew. All right. Well, I am feeling particularly ready to burn shit down right now. <laughs> so <laughs> let's move on to the burn pile. Uh, Bren, can you get us started here? Sure. This week, former indoor 400-meter champion Kemi Adekoya has been banned for four years for doping in another drug case. So uh, she runs for Bahrain, and Bahrain over the last, I don't know, 15 years has been wooing 
sort of uh, African athletes from Nigeria, Ethiopia, primarily, but there's others as well. And when I read about it, it's like even four and five years ago, there were warning signs that, you know, again and again and again, these women are testing positive. And again and again and again, the women are paying the price, right? So that gold medal gets struck, this record gets struck, they can't run again for four years, you know, and and basically, there were allegations way back in 2014 and 15 that, that these athletes were being bought and sold by third parties. So they're being trafficked. Now, that's not everyone. Like, for example, Ethiopian-born Bahraini runner Maryam Yusuf Jamal, who I believe uh, Shireen has featured a couple times on the show or has been a badass woman in different things, has never tested positive. So I'm not trying to in any way say that these runners from the Gulf states are particularly sort of shady or seedy or anything like that. But the fact that they continue to punish these women who are in really dire circumstances, who are there, who are there only because they're good at running and not punishing the men who run that federation for me is like just one more example of women paying the price for men's greed and desire. So I want to burn the IAAF. And by the way, IAAF, maybe this is what you should be doing instead of persecuting Castor Semenya. So maybe you could think about that. Yes. Burn. 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 Jess? Yeah. So first, I wanted to just give a quick update from my burn pile last week. Anna Tatashvili, who was denied her first round uh, loss paycheck at the French Open because officials felt she didn't try hard enough. She actually won her appeal and she's going to get that prize money. So I could even like retroactively take that burn (laughs) back. But I now I want to burn something that I've already burned before and not that long ago. So in episode 107 in late May, I said that I don't understand how horse racing is still a thing that exists. And I'm just back to say that again, (laughs) like nine weeks later. Earlier this week, two horses died at the Del Mar racetrack in California. They collided with each other during a training session and they died on impact. According to the New York Times, one of the horse's trainers said that it was a freak accident beyond anyone's control. To which I want to say, really? (laughs) Beyond anyone's control? I can think of one way this accident never would have happened, and that's that you don't race horses. Uh, So since December 30th of last year, 30 horses have died at the Santa Anita Park. At another California track, Golden Gate Fields, 18 died this past winter season. And please indulge me as I repeat some of the stats that I said from last time. So according to the Mercury News, nearly 10 horses a week on average died during racing at U.S. race courses in 2018, as many probably died in training, but no official count exists for that. According to the expert the Mercury News interviewed about this, that fatality rate in the U.S. is anywhere from two and a half to five times greater than Asia, Australia, or Europe. What? I will remain shocked at that every time I read it. Every time I read it. And the thing is, people who track these statistics say that these are normal numbers. That the main change around this is that people are now paying attention. A decade ago, Golden Gate Fields had a year where 53 horses died on the track, while Los Alamitos in Orange County reported 73 horses that died in training or racing. So there's lots of possible reasons for all this, including greedy track owners who do little to hold accountable the training practices that are more dangerous for the animals, 
climate change that's led to torrential downpours after years of drought that make track conditions perilous, the use of performance-enhancing drugs, and the, uh, that some people run young horses whose bones and muscles are not fully developed. God, it's all terrible. But whatever the reason is, I don't care. Why are we trying to mitigate horse deaths when we could just not race them? I'm not a fan of PETA, the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, because their campaigns against animal cruelty too often, they sort of, they, they're racist or sexist. But putting that aside for one minute, I do want to quote their senior vice president, Kathy Guillermo, who said in a statement about these recent horse deaths at Del Mar, where the horses collided, quote, saying that deaths are inevitable in racing is like saying a swim team can't compete without drowning. If racing can't be done without horses dying, it shouldn't be done at all. And I agree with her. And so once more, I want to burn these preventable horse deaths. Burn. Burn. All right, so it's been a while since we've discussed anything related to the Larry Nasser case, but today I'm here to remind you that while Nasser is behind bars, so many of his enablers uh, are still free. So this particular burn pile goes to John Getter. He was the head coach for the 2012 London Olympics for Team USA. He's, you know, the head coach at the Twist Stars gym in Michigan, where Nasser abused so many for so long. He himself has been accused of both physical and mental abuse and verbal abuse of his gymnast. And he and Nasser really came up together in the gymnastics world in Michigan. So in a book excerpt from Abigail Pesta's upcoming uh, book, The Girls, An All-American Town, A Predatory Doctor, and the Untold Story of the Gymnast Who Brought Him Down. So Sarah Turisti said that in 1988, Gettert began to, uh, to see Nasser abusing her. So the abuse was, I'm not going to get into explicits because we've had a very explicit podcast already. Um, but let's just say that he saw it escalate starting when she was 14 going to when she was 16. And it was complete sexual abuse. This man is still free. He's still out and about. And I want to throw that on the burn pile and throw all the people who have not been brought to justice in this case right onto the burn pile because this fight, it's far from over. Burn. Burn. Shireen? Okay, so this week what I am burning is this listing on a trampoline which was for sale on a website in the UK. Now, you're like, what, what's weird about that? What's weird about that is actually the way that the trampoline was listed for sale. So this is a 40-inch mini bouncer, and it was sold on Amazon, listed for 95 euros. Now, according to the details on this trampoline, it was important for the seller to state that quote, not advised for child or woman to install alone. Additional assistance <laughs> from men is preferred, end quote. So the seller of this trampoline, which, you know, I guess it was imperative to specifically state that women wouldn't be able to assemble this said trampoline. I know this seems like, you know, we, we burn a lot of stuff that's crucial, but you know what, when we talk about systems of sexism this trampoline seller 
it is a part of the problem. Do you need to say that? Do you think that any woman buying a trampoline will just simply be like, oh, I'm just going to buy this trampoline. It looks easy. No, she would have realized she would know that it's not a joke. Much like Ikea furniture, you need to organize and mobilize in order to assemble the bloody thing. So that seller so is so essentially the post was taken down and then you know Amazon got on and was just like you know this is a third party seller et cetera et cetera and you know I think that the, the company itself new one this trampoline can be a bit tricky when installing installing elastic cord parts it needs some strength and although we have a matching tool it is best to wear gloves when installing the elastic rope so we recommend men first again what but if the lady can also (laughs) install it it will even be more perfect the lady so i'm not gonna buy a trampoline but if i ever do buy a trampoline i am never gonna fucking have a man assemble it just because this is my way of resisting i want to burn this shit down so burn 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 All right. After all that burning, it is time to lift up some of the most badass people, uh, particularly women, this week. But first of all, we want to send our condolences to the family and friends and teammates of Denea Makala. She was a player with the TUT ladies football team, and she passed away on Saturday afternoon. And we just want to send all of our love to her because this is, um, it's a very tragic loss. All right. For our badass women, we want to talk about, first of all, give my shout out to Barbara Switzkova and his, hey, Barbara Switzkova and, and Say Shuei, who won the doubles title at Wimbledon last weekend. That was after we recorded. So we didn't get to give them, get to give them a shout out. And they are the best people ever. If you do not follow them or uh, check for their <laughs> press conferences, uh, you really should. It's true. Uh, we want to give a shout out to the latest woman to join the NBA coaching ranks, Lindsay Harding, former Duke and WNBA star who the Sacramento Kings hired as an assistant coach. Congratulations to Australia and New Zealand who reached the final in the 2019 Netball World Cup. Belinda Sharp became the first female referee of a National Rugby League game in Australia. Yuka Sasso of the Philippines came from behind to win the 2019 Girls Junior PGA Championship. She won with a 3-under 67 to finish the 14 at 14-under for the championship, two strokes ahead of the runner-up. South Korea's water polo team. They lost every game of the World Championships. A 64-0 defeat followed by 30-1. But they scored their first point ever. And the celebration is Badass Women of the Week worthy for sure. So congratulations to them. Um, Want to give a shout out to the Argentinian League, who the women there are finally getting their first professional contracts. We've talked about that on the show, but that's going into um, that's being executed, going into action this week. So we're thrilled for them. Simone Biles, she won the U.S. Classic on Saturday night to maintain her six-year winning streak. Special shout-out to Dr. Ornella Nzenduki Yumana of St. Francis Xavier University, 
who is the Jigliola Gori Early Career Student Award winner of 2019. She presented her paper on That's John Lowe on being a Black Canadian female track athlete in 1940s Toronto at the International Society for the History of Physical Education and Sport Conference in Madrid on Wednesday, July 17th. Congratulations. Now, can I please get a drum roll? All right. This weekend, Lena became the first Asian-born player to be inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Nah, she's from China. She won the 2011 French Open, and she became the China's first ever Grand Slam singles champion. She also won the 2014 Australian Open, nine WTA tournaments, and was a career high of number two. And if you don't know her, Google Lena speeches, and you will not be disappointed. I miss her on the <laughs> tennis tour so much. If you know, uh, she always liked to joke about her husband, Dennis, and give him a hard time about his snoring or uh, things like that. And in her speech at the Hall of Fame, she did the same. She said, it's been five years since I retired. In that time, I had two children. It's great. Sadly, Sadly same. same husband. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh, God. We love you, Lena, and we love you, Dennis, too. All right. What is good this week, Brenda? What is good this week is that I live close to Bard College, and they have this cool thing called the Spiegel Tent over the summer, and they bring artists. And for a very, very long time, I've loved Hedwig and the Angry Inch and its soundtrack and the movie and all that other stuff. And I know Neil Patrick Harris did like a fine job, but it's not the same as John Cameron Mitchell coming back to do it. And so I have tickets on Saturday to go see him perform as Hedwig in Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And I am so, so excited. So that's what's good for me. Oh, and I saw Amir, Amir and her kids. She breezed oh. through town just really quick. We had lunch. They haven't accepted me in terms of letting me hug and touch them constantly yet, but I'm, I'm working on figuring it out. <laughs> I'm working on figuring it out because they are so cute. So anyway, we had a Bayad baby lunch between my kids and her oh. kids, which make six. So, <laughs> it was a lot. <laughs> That's incredible. Jess? Yeah, I'm super excited that Veronica Mars is back and back a week early. That is, they were supposed to release it on Friday and they ended up releasing it this past Friday. So I've been watching that and I was actually watching the previous seasons to get ready. So just thrilled. I love that show. Uh, and then I wanted to mention, I have my 16th wedding anniversary with Aaron on Friday and he bought me the best gift. I posted these pictures on Twitter and Instagram and you should go look at it. I have been, I, I think I wrote on Instagram heavily advocating for a piece of yard art. It's like an almost life-size metal flat Bigfoot. <laughs> and I just think this is hilarious. And so now it looks like there's a Bigfoot sneaking out from behind the tree in our yard that you can see from the road. And I just think that is really funny. And so he finally That's relented. Amazing. And that was my present for my 16th wedding anniversary was my like almost life-size Bigfoot yard art. So that made me very, very happy. Yeah, you should check it out. I checked it out on Instagram. It's really cool. <laughs> It's really, it's really cute. cute. Yeah. I just, your smile, Jessica, is amazing. Like, you're I'm so, so excited. It you're makes so me laugh excited. Every time I laugh, every time I see it, it's incredible. <laughs> Shireen? I am in Edmonton, Alberta. I've never been here before. And it is, there's a lot of mosquitoes and it's not like sweltering like it is on the East Coast. 
of everywhere else. So I'm grateful for that. I'm also super, super excited for Algeria winning AFCON, like just so excited, so excited for the solidarity that they've shown with Palestine, which is really exciting for me to see too. Just there's a lot of happiness. My daughter's uh, best friend from her soccer team is in Algeria right now. She's Algerian and she's just like, it's Eid constantly. Like it's, it's, Wild. This is such a big deal. And I follow an Algerian female player too, because Algeria does have a women's team. And just to sort of, you know, bring attention to that and just sort of say, I hope this is an opportunity for people to recognize the women as well that play <laughs> in their country. Just last thing that I'm really excited about, other than all the ice cream I've been eating as I'm around Edmonton, is there's a song by Maitre Jim and Maluma, who is, Maluma is a, a Colombian singer, and then Maitre Jim is like my favorite French rapper. He's Congolese French. And I'm just obsessed with this because I feel like this song represents me and my friend Aaron, although neither of us are Congolese or Colombian and men. But I'm just saying, it's just like this great song, and I am really excited by it and listening to it incessantly. And that's about it. So that's, it's just happy. So happy. That's amazing. I, this week, had a collision of my two worlds when Megan Rapino was in Charlotte and met all the Carolina Panthers. <laughs> and so there oh, were all wow. of these photos of uh, because they were hosting a big soccer match. And it was incredible. So there's the head coach of the Carolina Panthers posing with Megan Rapino, and he's got his world championship shirt on. And she's with two of the biggest stars, Jonathan Stewart and uh, Christian McCaffrey. I haven't seen the Megan Rapino Cam Newton crossover yet, which is what I really need. But it's just, <laughs> she's got a Panthers jersey with Rapino on the back. If you know me, you know I. The Carolina Panthers are my team. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't quit them. And so to see Megan Rapinoe with them was super exciting. Also, this week is WNBA All-Star. I'm going to be in Vegas. Flamethrowers, please hit me up if you're going to be there. And my goal is to get lots of interviews and lots of content for Burn It All Down. And hopefully, you know, hopefully we can do some sort of meetup while we're there because it's going to be great. So please hit me up all like... I will probably cry every time I meet a flamethrower. So make me cry. Okay. (laughs) Um, Just one thing I wanted to piggyback off what Lynn's just said about Pino. Pino was there at the Arsenal Fiorentina match. And she also met Hector Bellerin, who is a gunner. And that photo is awesome. So basically, all these incredible male athletes are giving their due regard to the queen. So it's just, it's it's fantastic to see. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah, you can see, like, I knew it was a really big game, but I all I was paying attention to was the Panthers stuff because I just, <laughs> of course, I just of loved course. it so much. Okay. okay. Thank you all so, so much for uh, listening to Burn It All Down. We just are forever indebted for you, indebted to you for letting us do this project that we work so hard on. To support us, go to iTunes and leave a five-star review, please. Uh, That helps people find us. And look, we already have a lot of reviews for a smaller podcast, but we want to keep them going so we can then be a big podcast. So please. Also our Patreon, patreon.com slash burn it all down, where you can really help us on a monthly recurring basis sustain this show. So please go there and support. Follow us on Twitter at burnitdownpod. Our website, burnitalldownpod.com and on Facebook at Burn It All Down. And Gmail is also burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you all next week. And I saw-